Climate and resiliency are hot topics in Washington and New York this week, with a second hearing on the subject in D.C. tomorrow, and world leaders discussing the issue, among others, at United Nations meetings through Friday. Last week's congressional panel addressed steps needed to reduce industrial emissions. So what's the focus of Thursday's session? We're talking about that right now. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Ahead of tomorrow's hearing by the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, we examine resiliency with the ranking member, Congressman Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana. Congress has a full agenda of bills impacting the cement and concrete industries before it. Here's our conversation about those bills with Congressman Graves. Let's start with tomorrow's hearing by the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. It's titled Reducing Industrial Emissions Through U.S. Innovation. What do you hope to hear from the panelists? I think one of the most important things that we need to focus on is the progress that's been made to date. Uh, oftentimes, you hear folks that come out and they start demonizing the United States. They they start acting as though nothing here is happening. Industry's not responding, that the public is not responding to some concerns associated with climate change and greenhouse gases. And Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, there's a very powerful statistic that if you look back over about the last 15 years, the United States has reduced emissions more than the next 12 countries combined. I don't say that to spike the ball. I say it because it's a really important part of our future, meaning we've got to look back over the last several years. Let's figure out which practices, which techniques, which innovations have resulted in us leading the world in greenhouse gas reductions. Therefore, we can redouble those efforts. We can double down on those things that are yielding the great success that the United States has been showing over the last several years in regard to these reductions. And so looking forward to hearing from some of our witnesses about some of the things that they've been doing over the last several years that have resulted in these significant reductions while not increasing cost, while not taking away from the performance of different technologies and industries. Why do you think that the message of our success to date has gotten lost in the conversation? Because it's not convenient. And I'll tell you, whenever I look around sometimes, I I would not be surprised at all to find that you have U.S. adversaries that are actually funding some of these groups. Uh, Some of the things that they're doing or saying are so, one, not based on fact, and two, so unrealistic. I mean, things like Green New Deal, which, you know, look, on the one hand, I do appreciate brainstorming activities. How do we look at things differently? But that's such an abrupt change and shift. I mean, things like saying that we're not going to have airplane travel, that's pretty drastic. And I think that you carry out those type of drastic reforms when you're failing, not when you're leading. And we are leading right now, which is really sort of a head scratcher. And so I think that you have folks that are pushing a narrative and the fact that the United States is a leader in emissions reduction is simply not consistent with that narrative. And so therefore you don't hear that fact very much. You know, something else that you don't hear a lot is about the Paris Climate Accords. You don't hear about the fact that under the accords, under the agreements that were signed by the United States and China and others, while the United States has reduced for every one ton of emissions we've reduced, China has actually 
increase theirs by four tons. And on the trajectory that we're on, even under this agreement that some folks are out there saying is fantastic, China's going to increase. They'll be emitting five megatons annually in emissions. And so therefore, they're going to continue to increase their emissions over the next several years through 2030. And it's really just confusing to watch and hear how the United States is demonized when we're reducing emissions. And you have countries that are being patted on the back like China whenever they're actually increasing emissions under the agreement, and that's okay. And so if we're going to actually make progress on this issue, I think it's important that we all look at a set of facts first and understand what baseline conditions are. Do you think it's possible for Congress to get past the rhetoric and start looking at some of these facts when it comes time to decide what to do next? I do. I do think we can get past the rhetoric. I do think that we can come together and actually make progress on things that matter. And I think we've been able to demonstrate that last year. But one of the things we have to do is stop talking about and looking at this issue as this macro, under the macro lens or through the macro lens of, quote, climate change. That term is a very ambiguous term. It means different things to different people. And I think that the better approach is to split it up into digestible and definable pieces. And so I'll give you an example. Last year, one of the first things that we recognize is sort of the top priority is adaptation of our communities. It doesn't matter where you fall on the whole climate change spectrum. The reality is, is that we are seeing changes in weather patterns. We're seeing sea rise in some of our coastal communities and riverine communities in particular. Uh, experiencing more intense disasters in terms of damages. And so, look, this is a no-brainer issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. Let's make our communities more resilient because communities deserve to be more resilient. They don't deserve to be flooding and experiencing these challenges under increasing frequency. From a fiscal perspective, you save money by making the proactive investments, by leaning out there and going on the front end and making these communities stronger before storms come in. It helps to improve your ecological productivity. I mean, these are all wins and, and should not be things we're fighting over. So last year, under a Republican Congress, we made more progress on resiliency than any other year in modern history. Uh, greater investments, changes in policies, tens of billions of dollars invested in our communities, and long-term changes in federal disaster policy to ensure that we have more resilient communities that we're being proactive. And so the way that you address this is, again, by splitting it up in bite-sized pieces like we did last year, and then talking about solutions, really bipartisan solutions, on those digestible pieces instead of continuing to have this macro climate change discussion where we continue to talk past one another and, at least in many cases, ignore the facts. Part of the success last year was getting the Disaster Recovery Reform Act passed. It's coming up on its first birthday as a law. The president signed it last October. Why was that bill so critical in your view? When you look back, for example, since 1980, we've spent about $1.7 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars, responding to all these disasters. 220 disasters impacting uh, over a billion dollars worth of damages and so you can't afford that trajectory. I mean, just looking back, just since 2016, hundreds of billions of dollars in damages 
the 2016 flood in the area of South Louisiana that we represent, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria, Hurricanes Michael and Florence. So really just some extraordinary disasters causing extraordinary consequences on families, communities, businesses. And so I think it's important that that became law because it really changes the paradigm in how we handle disasters that historically has been this reactive approach that's unaffordable and, of course, provides for or or at least doesn't stop this profound impact on our communities and our families. You know, going through thousands and thousands of people, South Louisiana and Texas, from our 2016 and 2017 disasters and seeing, you know, just the devastation on their faces. These people have lost everything in regard to their family heirlooms, in regard to their physical possessions. In many cases, your home or your business is where you have put most of your investment. And to see these people just standing there, absolutely hopeless and helpless, because they had lost everything that they'd worked for for so many years, and just seeing the devastation was just, it was really awful. And so we have to change that trajectory that we're on and there's a much smarter way of handling these things. And I think that the bill that we did last year does put us on that trajectory of making a pretty profound shift from reactive to proactive, from excessive spending to constrained, principled spending. And I think it should have been done long ago. The people who follow this podcast know that you were not just talking about that issue. You were working hard in the House and the Senate to get it passed. And I know they appreciate that. Looking ahead now, though, it's going through those early days of implementation. How do you feel that process is playing out? Is it going well in your view? You know, unfortunately, I don't, but I'll also tell you I'm not a good bureaucrat and I'm pretty impatient. I would have liked to have seen faster implementation of these laws. I think that that giving an agency a year to carry out implementation seems like it's plenty of time. And so I've been a little bothered at the pace of implementation. I've been bothered at how many of these provisions that we wrote or we negotiated have been interpreted or executed, meaning that they're not consistent with congressional intent, which is frustrating. You know, when you work so hard to change the law, I remember when I was a kid, my my mom would often say, you know, whenever something was impossible, she would refer to it as an act of Congress. And, (laughs) you know, so there's a little bit of truth to that. It is pretty tough uh, threshold to cross. And so when you get it done, you shouldn't have to come back and relitigate it. But I feel like in many cases, we're going to have to go back and relitigate some of this stuff, which I just don't think, I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it reflects the sympathy or empathy that some of these agencies should be having for disaster victims. But look, it's a step in the right direction. We're certainly not letting up and we're going to continue to hold some of these bureaucrats accountable to ensure that they are complying with the intent of Congress on these laws to ensure that we have resilient communities, that we're making the right investments. The reality is change is hard for many of these folks that may have been implementing a law the same way for years or decades, and all of a sudden we just made a big shift. People sometimes don't adjust or adapt well, but we can't keep doing the things the same way that we've been doing them for decades. There are a bunch of other bills and acts that are moving through the House and the Senate up on the Hill. Uh, I thought we might go through these just to get a little update from you on how you see them. The first is WERDA, the Water Resource Development Act. WERDA is legislation that authorizes primarily all of the Corps of Engineers activities. So that could be deepening or widening navigation channels. It could be hurricane protection, flood protection, ecological restoration. The trend since 2014 has been 
that we do a bill every two years in even numbered years. But of course, there's a lot of lead up to that. So we are trying to lay the groundwork for a 2020 bill right now to make sure that we can continue building the right types of water infrastructure projects that the nation needs to facilitate our growth and resiliency. This bill traditionally has been able to transcend some of the partisan fighting. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to do that this Congress as well, meaning in 2020. And while there are some differences in opinion on some components of it, for example, there have been some big differences of opinion on some Clean Water Act provisions, waters of the U.S., this other provision having to do with uh, certification under the Clean Water Act, the Section 401 authority to states that has been obstructing infrastructure projects. Some states have been using these authorities to obstruct infrastructure projects. I think that in general, we are going to be able to work through the bigger component here and, and recognize that there's some really important things that need to happen in this legislation. I think we'll be able to get it done next year. What's the latest on the status of the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund? How's that going? The Revolving Fund, there have been efforts in recent years to significantly increase the authorization there for that loan program. There is some support in the Congress to increase the authorization level, but some of the authorization level, some of the changes in authorities that have been sought have been pretty aggressive. And I, and I don't know that to the tune of billions and billions of dollars, and I don't know that there's going to be that kind of support, meaning that type of increase. But I do think that we will be able to increase the program, move forward on reauthorization, and ultimately provide additional resources to states and municipalities to upgrade their water systems. And finally, this isn't a game show, but we like all of these abbreviations coming off the hill. WIFIA, how's that looking right now? This is another one that it works, I guess, similar to the way that the state revolving fund uh, works. They kind of work sort of in a complementary manner. This was something that we did back in 2014. I say we, I wasn't, I wasn't here then, but it was done back in, in 2014, providing funds for water and wastewater. I think that the program has complemented state revolving fund in a good manner. I think that we're going to move forward and continue providing assistance for water and wastewater through WIFIA, through state revolving fund, and these other programs that work. But I do think it's important that we also look carefully at the regulatory burden that we're putting on states and municipalities, because in many cases, these investments that they're making are being done sort of under the threat of enforcement actions by the federal government. And so one of the things that we need to do, and I think we've made a ton of progress on over the last few years, is looking at how to more efficiently comply with regulatory requirements. So let me, let me see if I can explain that uh, a, a little bit better. In many cases, we may have an objective of, okay, here's your clean water standard. Your water has to be this clean after you treat your wastewater, or your water has to be this clean when it's going into a house. And those are certainly really important objectives that we have. But in many cases, I don't think that the regulatory goals that we're putting in place reflect some of the newer technologies or best business practices. So one of the things that we've got to be doing is ensuring that we're allowing for the most efficient compliance with regulations as possible. And so what that means is having a complementary research and development program where we're helping to develop new technologies to achieve these goals and also looking to our state and local partners 
on alternative compliance, ways that they have found it. I'll give you an example. In the state of Louisiana, we have a massive land loss crisis where we've lost about 2,000 square miles of our coast. Well, one of the things we've been able to do is release partially treated wastewater into some of our coastal wetland projects. The, the wetlands complete the treatment process while uptaking the nutrients. So you end up having this symbiotic or this win-win relationship where you're reducing the cost of wastewater treatment, increasing the volume of your treatment capacity, improving your coastal restoration efforts. And so, I mean, just lower cost for water users, better ecological productivity. I mean, so just win-wins. And we've got to continue looking at how to best or how to most agilely comply or achieve these regulatory objectives of clean water. And you would say all of these ideas fall under that category of innovative thinking when it comes to dealing with resilience, dealing with the climate issues. It really is inseparable. It is, because this all has to do with adapting to change. And that could be change as a result of additional development or population increases. It could be change as a result of, as I mentioned earlier, sea rise or weather patterns. It could be a change as a result of, in our home state of Louisiana, we're at the bottom of one of the largest watersheds in the world. So changes in drainage patterns where we're getting more water coming into uh, our state as a result of what happens from Canada to Montana to New York, all the way down through this huge watershed. Uh, A lot of it has to do with adaptation to change and just ensuring resiliency of communities. And I think in many cases, these issues are inseparable. You've got to continue making investments in your infrastructure and your communities to ensure that they're as resilient as possible. The Disaster Recovery Reform Act sought to make some of that change, you know, to get us thinking differently about how we recover what we do to lessen the damage next time a storm comes rolling through. Do you think any of these other bills that we've been talking about present opportunities to take a similar position? I do think that they provide those opportunities, but I also think that one of the things we need to do before we we aggressively go down this path of looking at infrastructure program reauthorizations at the federal level, meaning pipeline reauthorizations and rail reauthorizations and highway roads and bridges, water and wastewater, aviation, we need to take a step back and do a better job determining what the federal government's role in infrastructure is. I told some folks last year that uh, we did a quick analysis, and it was it was something like 96%, 97% of all the people that come and visit in our office and have an idea, we can normally find some type of federal grant program that they're at least eligible for. And so what the federal government has found itself doing over decades and decades is that we effectively have a program that can, you know, to reiterate, can throw a nickel at every $10 problem across the country. And I think that in having implemented large-scale infrastructure programs in the past on the execution side, I think that what we need to be doing at the federal level is doing a better job determining what the federal government's role in infrastructure is and then being a reliable federal partner instead of coming in one year and saying, okay, we're going to prioritize highways and putting huge slugs of money toward roads and bridges. And then five years later, coming in and saying, well, you know what? Now we want to do aviation. So neglecting highways and then coming in and prioritizing aviation and so on. And so what you end up doing is you create uncertainty or unpredictability in funding levels in these different programs. 
And that's not okay. I think the better thing to do is to choose where the federal government is going to play the lead role, be a reliable federal partner providing ample funding to achieve those goals, and then allowing for states and local governments to go ahead and determine where they are going to be the lead and allowing them to set up budget mechanisms to be the lead in these other infrastructure programs because the unpredictability, the lack of stability in funding streams, I think has resulted in, uh, from the federal government, has resulted in many infrastructure problems across the country. And that has to do with water, wastewater, community resilience, roads and bridges, in some cases, pipelines, rail or aviation. And I think that's a major problem. I think the federal government has too broad of an infrastructure portfolio, and we need to do a better job working with our state and local partners, identifying where we're going to prioritize where they are, and then setting up funding programs that ensures that we have ample funding to achieve those goals. And you think that there is an opportunity, uh, not just over the course of the next few months, but probably over the next several years to try and implement those sorts of policies so that we can be coordinated on all of these efforts dealing with resiliency and climate concerns? I think that's a better approach because when you have this lack of uh, sort of responsibility, meaning who's the lead on this, it allows people to point fingers and just say, oh, well, look, we don't have enough money to do this wastewater project, but it's the federal government's fault. Or we don't have enough money to build this road project that we need, but it's the state's fault. Or, uh, hey, we've got this, this other drainage project, but the local, uh, our county or parish government doesn't have ample funding. And, and so I think if you can clarify roles and responsibilities, clarify who the lead parties are, it's going to help you to design funding streams that are sufficient or ample to meet the obligations or responsibilities that you have as the lead party as opposed to all this finger pointing that goes on right now where you have states pointing at the feds, the feds may be pointing back at the states, states may be pointing at your counties or local governments. I mean, it's just this triangle of finger pointing that goes on with no one actually held accountable. And so I think you have to have the appropriate structure in place to ensure accountability for these different programs as opposed to just having this somewhat vague approach where you have now where you, you may have a federal program, you may have a state program, In some cases, the county or local government may step up and provide funding. But I think if you have clear roles and responsibilities, we're going to have better ultimate performance and preparation for our infrastructure. What should folks who listen to this show uh, out there working in the cement and concrete industry, what should they be looking forward to or watching out for from the Hill on these issues in the next six months to a year? This is the most frustrating job I've ever had in my life, and certainly 2019, this year we're in now, has been the worst in regard to dysfunction and divisiveness out of Washington, which none of that is good news. However, the good news for the people in the concrete and infrastructure industry, if there is an area where Republicans, Democrats agree uh, that we need to be working together, it's on infrastructure. And as I mentioned earlier, things like the Water Resources Development Act, the the water bill, uh, things like highway, roads and bridges, these are areas where we all agree there's a federal role we need to step in and uh, work together to to come up with with bills, uh, with with legislative solutions. And and as we get closer and closer to these 2020 presidential elections, you think you've seen dysfunction now, just wait. Things are, it's, it's hard to fathom or imagine, but 
uh, I think that, that things are going to get become more divisive, more dysfunctional as we get closer to those elections. But I still think that this is an area where strong support, bipartisan support for infrastructure investment, recognizing this is the federal government's role, that that will allow us to overcome some of these partisan fights and allow us to get infrastructure solutions on the president's desk. Congressman Garrett Graves, thank you for your time. We'll look forward to your leadership on these issues and in the near term, your leadership at the hearing this week. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate, from voices you won't hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, October 1st on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.